This is your host, Mark Leon Goldberg. The Iran nuclear negotiations kick off in earnest this week in Vienna. A delegation from the EU plus three, or the P5 plus one, these are two ways of saying the same groupings of countries, which are the five permanent members of the Security Council plus Germany, are meeting with Iranian counterparts to to try to hammer out the final details of a deal that would limit Iran's nuclear capacity in exchange for an easing of sanctions. Negotiators have a deadline of July 20th to finalize this deal. Uh, This is based on an agreement back in November that gave negotiators a six-month window in which to complete a final deal on Iran's nuclear program. If an agreement is struck, this would be a hugely significant moment for international relations. Iran has been a rogue nation in the eyes of the United States since the 1970s, uh, and the fact that they have a nuclear program, potentially a nuclear weapons program, is seen as something that is utterly intolerable for the United States. If an agreement is struck in the next few weeks, it could fundamentally change the dynamics of the Middle East. For one, it could provide a pathway for normalization of relations between Iran and the United States. And it would also show that a country's nuclear ambitions needn't be confronted through the use of force alone, that some sort of comprehensive set of negotiations could do the job. Success in these negotiations is certainly not guaranteed. There are a number of very difficult issues that need to be overcome in order for this agreement to be struck. To help me make sense of what's going on, I speak with two people this week. Uh, the first is Laura Rosen, the journalist from Al Monitor, who's been following these issues for many years. And she takes us inside the negotiations, what happens inside the room, where the negotiations are taking place. Uh, the second person I speak with is Daryl Kimball of the Arms Control Association. And he walks me through the very specific issues that are on the table and what outcome might be expected from these negotiations. Before we jump into the interviews, I just want to say thank you all for listening. This has been a truly gratifying experience putting together this podcast uh, twice a week now. Every Thursday, I post shorter conversations like this on something topical. And every Monday, I post longer conversations with foreign policy luminaries about their life stories and careers been very interesting so far. I thank you all for listening. I encourage your feedback. Please send me an email via markleongoldberg.com or hit me up on Twitter at Mark L. Goldberg. And remember, you can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes and you can listen to all episodes on UN Dispatch. Here it is, my conversations with Laura Rosen and Daryl Kimball. First up, you'll hear Laura Rosen. Looking for a trustworthy podcast to bring you unfiltered viewpoints and experiences on global health? Tune into Global Health Matters, the podcast that connects silos and amplifies diverse voices to give you a holistic picture. Each month, Dr. Gary Aslanian from the World Health Organization hosts discussions with guests spanning former ministers of health, award-winning journalists and authors, and frontline public health workers. Join listeners from across 180 countries for an exciting Season 4, launching in June. Global Health Matters is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. 
usually have all the delegations from Iran and the, and the five plus one, um, the five permanent members of the UN plus Germany, um, plus the EU High Representative Kathy Ashton. They usually go to the UN building um, and have their photo taken, essentially, and have a, uh, a kind of plenary session where they let uh, photographers come in at the top of the session. You see, you've seen those photos from each round, and you can just tell the different color tie that's Zarif or Kathy Ashton, you know, jacket she's wearing. But in any case, then they basically move over to the, it's called the Palais Coburg, which is an old hotel in Vienna that's actually built into the, the walls of Vienna. Um, and the, the very top negotiators from um, the U.S., EU, and Iran stay at this um, old hotel, um, and they have their negotiations there. The last two rounds, now that we're getting to the drafting stage and we're moving towards uh, the ostensible um, deadline of July 20th, when they were trying to get the original agreement, um, the, the um, Ashton and Zarif, or else their deputies, are kind of with each other, and then they bring in other people as needed, because, you know, you can't have seven countries sitting in a room together writing a draft. It's just way too complicated. So Ashton, as the coordinator for the six, and Zarif, or his deputies, uh, Arachi and Ravanchi, um, representing Iran, usually do the drafting, and then there's just tons of other bilaterals, trilaterals, working groups, um, experts meetings going on in parallel um, to try to deepen whatever they're working on. So it's it's it's, it's kind of at a, a free-form stage that's um, getting harder to, and they don't even, t at this point, they don't even tell us sometimes who's meeting with who, um, because there's so many different meetings going on, and it's, it's, it's getting quite sensitive. So it, it's interesting that you said that's Ashton and Zarif, Zarif being the, the lead Iranian negotiator. We'll, we'll get back to him in a second, are the two that are, are really putting pen to paper. Um, but, you know, I, I saw that Deputy Secretary of State Bill Burns is leading the U.S. negotiation. I, I just can't imagine that sort of a U.S. Deputy Secretary of State would be sitting outside the room while right. the EU high commissioner or while, while the EU representative does, you know, the, the, the hard work. No, absolutely, and you know, they there are there were several at the last round in June. There were several meetings that were um, Ashton, Sherman, Zarif, and their team. You know, I'm talking about the leaders of their team. And uh, Deputy Secretary Burns came just for the the first day before the, the real nuclear negotiations began. Um, Under Secretary Wendy Sherman is the lead U.S. negotiator. Her counterparts are the political directors from the other countries. Um, it's a little bit unclear. You know, Zarif, the foreign minister of Iran, considers the EU high representative, Kathy Ashton, his counterpart. Um, his deputy foreign ministers are considered the counterparts to Hel uh, Helga Schmidt, who's Ashton's deputy, and then Wendy Sherman and her counterparts from, from France and the other P5 plus one. So Burns coming and, you know, Burns and Jake Sullivan from the vice president's office, it's a little bit hard for me to understand exactly um, if they're going to be sitting with their counterparts or if Burns is going to be considered the counterpart of Zarif for the purposes of this. Um, I'm sure it's a little bit confusing for the other parties as well. Um, so you mentioned that uh, Ashton, Catherine Ashton, the, the EU's uh, foreign policy chief, uh, is doing a lot of the negotiating directly with Iran. Is there daylight between the EU's position on some of the, the thornier issues and the United States' position? And if so, does that ever manifest itself? So what they've tried to do, the 5 plus 1 plus the EU, 
um, you know, they all acknowledge they have different national positions, but they forged for, you know, ahead of each round, and we, they did meet last week in Brussels, um, and they met the time before that as well, ahead of time. And they forge a common position before, you know, before the round, and then they represent it. And what was most striking last round was that the two countries that are considered probably the most sympathetic to Iran, Russia and China, made a point of telling some of us uh, journalists, um, you know, giving us some um, comments as they left the negotiations each day that showed they were backing up the five-plus-one position, that Iran should reduce the number of centrifuges um, in a final deal. And, and that the five plus one should in turn, you know, there could be trade-offs in terms of how much, how quickly the sanctions relief would be um, delivered in a final deal. So, you know, of course, do Russia and China probably have different national positions on, you know, how many centrifuges Iran could have than the U.S. or France who are considered tougher? Yes, they probably do, but they were very clearly um, backing up the five plus one joint position. Similarly, the EU, whatever, you know, beyond that there's 28 member states and Ashton has to represent the common view, at, at these negotiations, it is her job to represent this, not just the 28 EU states, but the five plus one, um, you know, plus Russia, China, and the U.S. And I think she's done a fairly good job of, of, of standing above any disagreements um, that may, may exist. Um, you know, in the fall when they were negotiating the interim deal, that they got in November in Geneva. Um, we now know that there were secret U.S.-Iran um, bilateral talks, and you could see some confusion in the EU. In the, you know, you would go to these meetings with the five plus one and Iran, and sometimes it would seem like the U.S. and Iran were more aligned than the, some of the others. And it was very odd. And in fact, the U.S. hadn't told the others that it was having these meetings. Yeah, those secret talks took place in Qatar, right? In, in Oman. In exactly. Oman, right, right. Yeah, and and, Geneva, and then, the, you know, moved to different – sometimes they would just do it in Geneva or wherever. Um, so, you know, Ashton never publicly sort of acknowledged that that had been a hiccup. But you could – what the um, this time, since January, since they've been negotiating the final deals, then there have not been unacknowledged – bilateral meetings, as far as I know. You know, they, they went to Geneva last month and had a two-day bilateral meeting, um, and they announced it ahead of time, even though they didn't have any press. Um, and they've been having, like, a bilateral meeting for two, three hours at the, at the Vienna talks, like all the other countries do. But they haven't been doing the secret channel. And you can tell because the draft is not, you know, there's still big gaps, and um, they have not narrowed the gaps to the extent that um, they had, before we got the interim deal. Um, can you tell me a little bit about Zarif? Um, you know, I know both sides are operating within some, you know, pretty intense domestic political constraints. Uh, what, uh, you know, and on the U.S. side, that's manifested, I think, mostly by, you know, members of Congress and members of, of the Senate sort of criticizing the deal or criticizing any deal that allows Iran to keep enriching uranium. What sort of constraint? I guess, who is Zarif and what kind of constraints is he operating under? That's a good question. Um, uh, you know, he's the has a U.S. Ph.D. and he lives in the United States. He's a longtime Iranian diplomat. Um, I think he got his Ph.D. in Denver, and he um, studied in California for his undergrad and master's degree. He speaks fluent English. Um, I think at least one or two of his children were born in the United States. He was um, previously the longtime Iranian envoy to the U.N. in New York. 
So he actually has a lot of relationships with um, even members of Congress um, who've gone on to positions in the in the um, in the cabinet, like Biden and uh, I think Kerry had known him, and um, I think Dianne Feinstein, the senator from California, has mentioned that she's met him. Um, so this is someone you know. He he knows um, how to you know talk to Americans, and he's done things that are a world apart from the last negotiating team from Iran that was led by Saeed Jalili, who's a little bit more of a hardliner. Um, he does the negotiations in English. They don't have to sit through all the translation. Um, they email, and you know, obviously they've met bilaterally with the United States, um, and they think that it's in the Iranian interest to do so, and they've kind of de-tabooized that. Um, so stylistically, um, uh, maybe even um, you know, diplomatically, he's very straightforward. They've moved very quickly. Look, I mean, Iran has stopped enriching 20% since January 20th per the agreement. That's the first time that's happened in about five years. So, I mean, he's he's made real differences. Now, the last few talks, it's clear that he's um, um, demonstrating that um, he has red lines from home that he is negotiating under and that uh, he doesn't have as much flexibility and he thinks that some of the demands from the 5 plus 1 are unreasonable. He particularly singled out the United States for having unreasonable demands. He was using at his press conference in Vienna in June um, much more language that I would associate with the hardliners talking about, like Iran um, would be fine if they don't get an agreement. You know, they want an agreement, they're coming here to negotiate. But, um, look, we have a resistance economy and we'd be okay. And those are resistance economies, the kind of buzzword that would be associated with his predecessor, Saeed Jalili. Um, it's only partly a bluff. I mean, some of this is brinksmanship in negotiations. Um, one, it would demonstrate to his hardliners whatever agreement he tries to sell back home. Look, guys, I negotiated as hard as I can, and this is the best we're going to get. But, you know, some of it may be not a bluff, and partly I think we don't know. The U.S. Um, doesn't know how much can he give. And um, so we're at a kind of odd moment where the numbers on certain things are said to be very far apart still, and um, there's not a lot of haggling actually going on. Um, I think both sides are trying to demonstrate that um, their positions are pretty firm, and the other side's going to have to give more. You saw Kerry had an op-ed, uh, Secretary Kerry had an op-ed in the Washington Post this week, where, you know, that was sort of the message that, you know, we're, we want a deal, but Iran's going to have to uh, make some serious decisions here. And uh, Foreign Minister Zarif had an op-ed in the Post uh, right before the last round before that that had this similar thing. Here's an historic opportunity, but, um, you know, don't miss your chance. So I think that they, you know, we've still been in a kind of brinksmanship stage. And in all honesty, you know, I think we really won't know. Um, we, you and I could have this conversation on uh, July 19th, and we won't know if, they've, if they're going to get it. Well, that was, that was going to be my last question. What uh, do you think the chances are? What do you think the likely, likely outcomes are uh, for July 20th? And, and what are you saying? It's still- I've been asking everyone this as well. And so it's, you know, there's... Clearly, the U.S., as you mentioned, we're sending 15 people, including Deputy Secretary Bill Burns and Under Secretary Sherman, to Vienna for two weeks. The amount of bandwidth and personnel, uh, top-level personnel being devoted to this issue is unprecedented, um, and, and the other teams as well. So 
um, it is a sign of determination that they are going to do everything they can to see if they can close this. But I think there is a level of uncertainty. I, I, I think probably the most um, the, the scenario I would give 51 percent um, is that a slight edge is that uh, July 19, July 20th, um, if they if they're able to narrow one or two big gaps, then they stop the clock as this saying goes, and they just start uh, nailing down the details. And it could go to August 2nd. Or, you know, that there could, once, once they nail down these things, there's still, you know, a lot of stuff to draft, and that could take a few more days. Um, but I think that it's not going to be till the very end that either side um, is, is able to show that they can really give. Uh, well, Laura, thank you so much. This was, thank this was you. super helpful. Thanks, Mark. Now here's Daryl Kimball of the Arms Control Association, who gives us more of a wonk's take of the issues on the table. Here is Daryl Kimball. Well, the two sides have known for a long time that there are about five issues that have to be dealt with. Um, they've made progress on several of them, but they uh, still have differences on a couple of the big ones. So, first of all. Uh, the most difficult issue appears to be defining Iran's uranium enrichment capacity uh, in a way that uh, reduces its capability to make a quick dash for the bomb if they were to choose to do so, while at the same time providing for its legitimate nuclear energy needs into the future. And I'll come back to that. The second big issue is how to reduce the plutonium production potential of Iran's Iraq heavy water reactor that's still under construction. Uh, current design uh, would uh, theoretically allow that reactor to produce uh, in one year enough plutonium for about two nuclear bombs. There are ways in which the reactor can be modified to severely reduce the plutonium output. Uh, that seems like a solvable issue. Another critical issue is uh, the extent to which the International Atomic Energy Agency's monitoring and verification provisions will be expanded. Uh, most important is to obtain IAEA access to Iran's undeclared facilities and military sites, where it theoretically could have a secret program. The U.S. intelligence community has assessed for several years that if Iran were to uh, try to build nuclear weapons, the most likely route would not be at the known declared facilities, but at undeclared sites. So getting inspections uh, on those undeclared sites, SNAP inspections, uh, monitoring of Iran's centrifuge production facilities is, is critical, and only this agreement is going to be able to deliver that. Uh, another critical issue is uh, this agreement between the P5 plus 1 and Iran needs to help uh, accelerate the conclusion of the long-running International Atomic Energy Agency investigation into possible military dimensions of Iran's nuclear program. Uh, the IAEA has identified several activities, uh, uh, mostly before the year 2004, uh, that have possible military dimensions. Uh, the IAEA and Iran, in fact, in the fall, uh, reached a framework agreement for reaching a conclusion. Uh, this comprehensive agreement between the P5 plus 1 and Iran can uh, help accelerate the conclusion of that agreement so that the IAEA 
can determine, we hope, that any such activities that may have been done in the past are no longer taking place and um, Iran is not secretly pursuing a nuclear weapons program. The other issue, which is particularly important for Iran, is the, uh, the pace and the scope of sanctions relief. Uh, it is clear that Iran wants the fastest possible uh, sanctions relief. Uh, it is also clear that the P5 plus 1 want to calibrate the pace of sanctions relief uh, so that Iran is following through on its non-proliferation commitments, and then the sanctions are relieved or lifted. So those are the key issues. Uh, they've made a lot of progress in several areas, um, and if they can close the gap on defining Iran's uranium enrichment capacity, which I think is the toughest, the a resolution on, on the other issues should uh, occur. So I think it's quite possible the two sides can reach an agreement uh, on or around July 20. It's within reach. It's going to take creativity uh, on the part of both sides. Uh, it's going to take compromise on the part of both sides. And neither side's going to get everything they want, but it's possible that both sides get uh, what they need uh, to meet their core national security and, and political interests. And on that question of the Iranian enrichment capacity, I mean, I mean the, the issue here is levels of Iranian enrichment, right? Like the, the United States and the P5 plus one want to make sure that the level is low enough to, I, I guess, slow down the pace at which Iran could potentially break out. Uh, but Iran still wants to maintain some, some of its own enrichment, right? I mean, this is not, this is not a no enrichment deal, correct? Correct. I mean, Iran... Since the, uh, for the last decade, they have had a uranium enrichment program. Uh, it is fantasy to believe that uh, Iran would agree to negotiate away all of its uranium enrichment capacity at this point. Uh, since 2007, the U.S. intelligence community has assessed that Iran has the scientific, the technological capability to build nuclear weapons if they choose to do so. So. What this negotiation can and must achieve is to reduce Iran's capacity to produce nuclear weapons usable material, uh, primarily highly enriched uranium, uh, and to increase the uh, monitoring and inspection so that any such effort can be promptly uh, detected and, and disrupted. So that's what this, that's what would, a good deal would do. That's what this deal can do. Um, and so the, the challenge for the two sides is to find um, uh, a way that sufficiently uh, reduces Iran's capacity to produce nuclear weapons material if they were to choose to do so while still allowing Iran to have uh, a uranium enrichment program that can support the kind of uh, civil, peaceful nuclear energy program that they uh, say they want to have in the next 15 to 20 years. So what I would expect the negotiators uh, to agree to, if they can reach this agreement, is for the first several years of this agreement, perhaps five, six, seven years in duration, there will be uh, constraints on Iran's overall uranium enrichment capacity that are at or below current levels. Uh, today, Iran has about 10,000 operating first-generation centrifuges. Um, they clearly don't need even that many to sustain, uh, to provide enrichment for fuel for the reactors that they have. Uh, 
They have a light water reactor called the Bashir reactor that is being supplied by Russia uh, until the year 2021. They have a research reactor in Tehran that's already supplied and doesn't require any further enrichment services for many, many years to come. Um, so it should be easy for the two sides to agree to uh, uh, capping Iran's enrichment capacity over the next several years uh, at or below current levels, hopefully uh, much lower than current levels. The problem comes in later. Uh, if uh, Iran's Bashir reactor doesn't continue to get uh, fuel services from Russia, then Iran says we're going to have to increase our uranium enrichment substantially. And so a agreement is going to have to address that concern on the part of Iran. Uh, the P5 plus 1 can provide ironclad fuel supply assurances. Russia could even possibly manufacture the fuel for the Bashir reactor and send it to Iran before 2021. That would be a very firm assurance. Um, and uh, Iran needs to recognize that its nuclear fuel needs are very low to, uh, to zero uh, for the next seven to eight years. And they're not going to rise unless new reactors come online for which they can't get um, fuel supply. So I think that's the tough part of the agreement. It's going to take creativity uh, and flexibility on both sides to find a formula that um, meets the interests of both sides. And on the sanctions issues, um, what are the specific sanctions that Iran most sort of urgently wants to see uh, reduced or eliminated? Well, first of all, it's the uh, financial sanctions and the oil-related uh, sanctions that are uh, hurting the Iranian economy the most. Uh, they want to achieve uh, relief in those two areas as quickly as possible. Uh, what we're likely to see, if there's an agreement, is uh, that the United States, the president, can uh, use the legislative authority he has to waive certain sanctions, uh, and that can go on for maybe two, even three years, but eventually it will require that Congress affirmatively change the sanctions regime uh, to uh, lift uh, some of those most, uh, uh, some of the toughest sanctions. Uh, the European Union uh, can take uh, actions in parallel. Uh, Iran actually relies more on trade with uh, European countries as well as uh, other oil-consuming countries like China, India, um, and so those that kind of sanctions relief um, will be important for Iran. Uh, one other possibility is that some of the sanctions legislation that Congress has passed, including the Iran Sanctions Act, uh, it will sunset at the end of 2016. So some sanctions will essentially expire unless otherwise renewed. So I think that kind of formula can allow Iran uh, the phase sanctions relief they're seeking in the short term while confidence is being built up uh, that they're complying with the terms of the agreement uh, that can lay the groundwork for more permanent uh, sanctions relief down the road. Uh, well, Daryl, thank you so much for your time. I, I appreciate this. You bet. And uh, if I could just add one thing, uh, Mark. I mean, I think one of the things that we all need to consider uh, when and if the negotiators come back from Vienna with an agreement is uh, the alternative, uh, which is 
no agreement. And uh, this is why the stakes in this negotiation are so very high. Uh, right now, Iran's nuclear capacity is being held in check by the interim agreement struck back in November. Uh, there are more extensive inspections underway now. But if the two sides don't reach a comprehensive agreement uh, this month or very soon thereafter, uh, what we're likely to see is Iran's nuclear capacity increasing. Uh, it might begin deploying additional centrifuges, uh, increasing its enriched uranium stockpile. Essentially, it will be getting closer to a nuclear weapons capability if uh, it were to choose to do so. Um, and that increases the risk of conflict over the program. And we've seen how um, U.S.-led uh, wars in the Middle East uh, uh, involving WMD issues uh, turn out. Uh, Iraq today, 10 years after our invasion, uh, is a disaster. So, um, you know, the military option is an option, but it's not a solution. And this agreement, this conference of agreement, is uh, simply the best option on the table for preventing a nuclear-armed Iran and another war in the Middle East. Uh, well said. I, I would say amen to that. So thank you. All right, let's cross our fingers. Take care. Thanks a lot. Thank you all for listening. Uh, this will certainly be an interesting story to follow over the next few weeks, and I hope this helps you put everything in context. Have a great day. Bye.